Welcome, you're listening to Power Has No Gender, and exceptionally, this episode will be in English. Today, my guest is Beatrice Finn. I think, you know, what's really important to me is that we, we see the world as a complex sort of almost web of different privilege, and that we try to help the people that don't have what we have uh, constantly. I'm happy to share with you this discussion I had with the director of the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize winning organization, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. This very positive and wise woman has an interesting and hopeful view on women and gender issues in the workplace, and specifically in the disarmament field. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. With Beatrice, we talked about how it is to grow up in Sweden with outspoken feminist and activist parents, the importance to check our own privileges, the challenges that come with the Nobel Peace Prize, the links between weapons and gender norms, and the importance of just being good enough and being okay with failing to have space to learn and grow. Hi, Beatrice. Thank you so much for accepting this invitation and welcome to this podcast. Thank you. How are you today? How are you feeling? I'm great. I have about two more days before my holiday. So I'm just wrapping things up this week and very much looking forward to shutting off all social media and emails and going on holidays soon. Nice. Uh, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Well, my name is Beatrice. Uh, I'm the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Uh, I live in Geneva here uh, with my husband, my two kids. And yeah, I, I run this campaign, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Uh, we won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. Uh, we've been working on banning nuclear weapons, which we achieved just shortly before that. Um, and really, uh, Yeah, I do lots of things, mostly emails, but uh, yeah, trying to mobilize people to take action against nuclear weapons. Nice. Um, I have to tell you that it means a lot to me that you are here today to have this discussion about gender and leadership, because I first heard of you and then met you when I was still a student a few years back and started working in the disarmament field. And at that time, I had a lot of questions about what was I going to do, what could I do? And it really gave me a lot of confidence to have like a few examples of strong women leaders uh, I could look up to in the world I was entering. Mm -hmm. And um, it showed me that women could lead movements, could be confident, determined, that we don't have to be afraid to be in the spotlight, and that we had a voice in security issues. So mm -hmm. really, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I'm really... You know, I feel the same, exactly the same way about so many other women in this movement that have led before me and have, uh, you know, had a, a significant role. And I think that in general, women have always been leaders, and especially in progressive social movements, uh, but maybe not formally as head of organizations or, but in the communities they have. So I think it's really nice to see that it's much more visible now, women's leadership, than it was. I think it's always been there, but it's more visible and recognized now. So that's really great. Uh, my first like, formal real question is quite a simple one. Are you happy to be a woman? Yeah, I think, I mean, if I have to be honest, I think it's a little bit better to be a woman than a man. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. Uh, I obviously don't have anything to compare with. But I think one of the things that is really great with the women's movement is that we managed to break down a lot of barriers right now. And you know, it's also it's also a challenge. But I think that it's much more accepted for women to take space in men's dominated fields these days than it is for men to take space in women-dominated fields and female characteristics and sort of female professions. So, and that's obviously had to do with that male things are valued more, so it's easier for women, it gives women prestige also to enter those fields, and it lowers men's prestige to enter women's fields. But I just feel like women now, just think about th simple things like shopping for my daughter, I have one son and one daughter, and you know I've always bought stuff from the boys' section to my daughter. She can use very girly clothes, she can use very masculine clothes, nobody reacts. But for boys, they, they not, it's still very limited. It feels much more controversial to buy girl stuff for my son. So I feel like women have this, like they can sort of move between these two things, and that's socially accepted today whereas men are still very restricted to only half of the kind of characteristics and things. Um, so, yeah, I think that women, uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy to, to have that flexibility. Thank you. And do you remember how you were raised as a child? Like, which, with which kind of principles uh, were you empowered to become someone in particular? I think I was raised... In, I'm Swedish, so raised in a society that, of course, isn't equal yet, but has often very talked about equality and, and gender issues from a very early stage. And um, even my dad, you know, in, I'm born in the 80s, he, he had paternity leave, so he stayed home with us. Uh, so I think that, you know, set me up very well for thinking that that's normal. Uh, that's not strange. I mean, obviously, we still have in all in all parts of society inequalities. But when I got to Geneva, for example, and started working with other people, uh, I was really surprised that calling yourself feminist was still controversial to some people, especially like Americans and British people, for example. Whereas in Sweden, even in the 90s, you know, our male prime we never had a female prime minister in Sweden, so we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, but even the male prime ministers, yes, I'm a feminist. Like everyone said, it's it's not a big deal. Um, so I think that my upbringing uh, has been very much, you know, taking that for granted a little bit. Uh, and I also grew up very much in a politically active family, with my both my parents being involved in different causes and, uh, you know, protesting things and campaigning against things. So it was also very normal for me to. Talk about politics and and have the space to express opinions and be aware of what's happening around in the world. Um, I also grew up in a, a very diverse area, one of the suburbs outside Gothenburg, with a lot of immigrants. And when I went to school, it was just you know me and two three other children who had both parents lived and born in Sweden. Uh, so I also, I mean, it, that has also shaped my, my, I think, interest in peace and conflict issues and security issues. I, I think from an early stage, I saw 
people coming from uh, Iran, from the revolution, and then we had the whole Balkan war and a huge influx of refugees from the, the Balkans. And I remember starting after the summer and suddenly we have all these new students from, from the Balkans. And I remember being really confused as a child. I couldn't understand who was the goodies and who were the baddies. Like, it was Serbs, it was Croatians, it was Bosnians, it was Kosovo Albans. Like it was so confusing, and it just I, I couldn't understand how there could be so many different people and so many different parts of one conflict. Um, so I think just understanding that everyone is, you know, that what happens around the world also impacted, you know, us in Sweden, even if we weren't directly involved, was very present. And yeah, just uh, you know, grew up with the sense that. You have to understand where people are coming from and, and what context they grow up in in order to work with them today. And do you remember what did you dream of when you were a child? I mean, as a young child, you know, anything to do with animals and horses. <laughs> and then I had this idea that I wanted to become a doctor. Uh, but I think really early I wanted to work on on political stuff and, and I was interested in international relations. Um, so it's sort of, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I still don't really know what I wanted to <laughs> do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just these kind of political issues. Yeah. And did you have a role models who inspired you at that time? I think my, my parents very much. Uh, that they were very active in that. Uh, always looked up to, you know, I've always had this fascination with foreign policy and, and, and diplomacy. And I think it also comes from being from a small country. You really don't have a lot of military power as a Swede. Like you can't, you know, say Sweden first, you know, we're going to dominate the world and decide all the things. The only thing Sweden can do, and Swedes can do, in order to influence the world is through multilateralism, through diplomacy, through sort of this kind of soft power, which I really don't like the expression hard and soft power, but you know, it's easy to make people understand that. So I think, you know, I've, I've always been very fascinated with yeah, foreign ministers and the kind of UN systems, so secretary generals, you know, you had the Kofi Annan, that I was really, you know, Nelson Mandela. Uh, we had this Swedish foreign minister, Anna Lind, who was murdered as well. She was, um, uh, she was a big inspiration uh, for me. And today, what is important for you in life? <sighs> Difficult question. <laughs> I mean, you have all the things, you know, when I'm with my children and my family, and you think this is really what actually matters in life um, but I also do really think that making the world better but also or at least the attempt of making the world better is really important to me I think we don't always succeed with activism and our political fights you know we lose sometimes but this idea that it's just something that we're supposed to do we're supposed to try to make things better and try to help each other, try to help um, people that don't have voice or don't have power, I think is really, really important. And I'm very inspired right now by the kind of conversations on intersectionality, how gender connects to race, connects to class, connects to you know, all these different perspectives on 
power and equality and justice. So yeah, I'm, I really do think that we we have to fight the people that hold the power, but also recognize when we hold power and help the people without that power. So you know, I'm very passionate feminist. So I'm very often like, oh, men have to do this and this and that. But I'm also white. And so I have to also recognize that I'm a privileged person. And I, in the same way as I can be frustrated with men who don't recognize their power and privilege, I very often don't recognize my power and privilege in terms of skin color, in terms of class, education. So it's, you know, I think, you know, what's really important to me is that we, we see the world as a complex sort of almost web of different privilege and that we try to help the people that don't have what we have uh, constantly. Uh, even if we don't succeed, it's not so much about achieving the change, it's more as being aware that it needs to happen and doing our best to do it. So you do a lot of advocacy work, you work closely with diplomatic community, which is mainly male dominated, as you said, uh, especially when it comes to security issue. Thinking about it now, do you think being a woman made a difference in your professional life? I think it's helped in some ways and been negative in some ways. There's a lot of awareness right now about the lack of women in power. So being a younger woman coming into this field is sometimes beneficial because you get invited to panels because they need a woman or they really want to showcase like young people. So they put you out in the front and, and some people get insulted by that, that oh, I don't want to be invited to a panel just because I'm a woman. But, you know, it's never, like, panels are never objectively the best people anyway. You get invited because you know someone, and you get invited because you're a serious man and have credibility. Like, you nobody deserves anything. <laughs> it just happens. So I've tried to take those opportunities, and instead of be feeling that I, uh, I don't deserve it, just say, well, I'm getting an opportunity now, so I'm just going to take it. But of course it's negative in some ways and, and have had a lot of challenges because I'm a woman. And I think in particular because as a woman you are an advocating for something like disarmament, you get sort of double punished. Like women are considered weak and emotional and fragile and disarmament is considered weak and emotional and you know fragile. So you sort of, I can see how in our campaign, I can make an argument and people just shake their head and uh, no, that's unrealistic, naive, it's never going to happen. And then a man makes the same argument and it's like, sounds really serious and strong and reasonable. So that's frustrating, of course. Uh, and that's not just men who do it, women do it as well, because we've all been kind of indoctrinated of in this idea of what strength is, what rationality is. We have this idea that weapons of mass destruction, threatening to mass murder civilians is strong and rational when it's completely emotional, naive uh, policy. And actually as, you know, disarming is this strong and rational. So I think that, that has definitely been a challenge. And then you have the kind of straightforward things that people think that you don't know anything, people think that you, um, they like to sort of correct you or talk down to you. I mean, I've had my fair share of, you know, comments about my appearance, what I'm wearing, you know, things like that. And I've been very, uh, in, you know, I've heard a lot of stories from other female colleagues who've had, you know, 
straightforward sexual assaults happening. And I've been very lucky to never have anything you know, serious about that. But I'm obviously aware that that happens a lot. And particularly when you are an, a campaigner or a, an activist or a lobbyist that trying to ask powerful men for something, you're always in a um, vulnerable position because you need something from them. Uh, and you're asking them to to help you with something or do something for you, so they om already automatically have a, a position of power over you. So it, it it is challenging in that way. You had positions that led you to take an important like representative and management role. Did you ever feel a lack of legitimacy or the famous imposter syndrome? All the time, mm -hmm. and I think that you know, going back to your question about my upbringing, I think I've you know been lucky to be also a little bit clueless sometimes about what people think of me, <laughs> like a little bit sort of this you know able to forget about that and just do whatever makes sense to me. I think you, I think it's important not to overthink things. So sometimes we feel like okay, I I don't. You know, I'm not the best person for this job. I, I have my flaws. I, I'm not as good as other people. But so what? Like, I, you know, there's always going to be someone better. There's always, you know, I'm not the best person for this job, but I have this job, so I'm just going to do it. I think sometimes we have to also stop, uh, you know, expecting so much of ourselves or and just go ahead and do things in a bit of a, almost like when you're a child and you just don't think about it, you just do stuff. Uh, so I tried to have that attitude, and I think I've been quite lucky to be able also to have kind of a, a natural shrugging my shoulders and just go on. Uh, you know, I do what I can. Um, I don't have to prove so much to people. Uh, I can just, you know, I, I, it's good enough. And I think that that's also one of the things that I've been trying to work on is just to think that you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Things don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be the perfect, you know, director of this campaign. I just have to be good enough. And that's good enough. It's really interesting because I was going to ask you a question about, like, how do you feel regarding people's expectations? Mm -hmm. So you, have you been, like, working on that to be able to free yourself from also outside expectations? I, I think I have um, um, quite a naturally spoiled personality. I just like good things happen and I just turtle on in life and don't think so much about, you know, <laughs> what could happen or what other people think. So I think I have it, you know, it's just as a characteristic. But I, I of course have had to also work on it. Um and you know realizing that you can never please anyone and especially as a woman. I mean we have such unrealistic expectations and um if you make a, a mistake as a woman, it's very easy for people to so, like zoom in on that and and talk about it. And you know, we see how women uh, have to meet much much higher standards. I mean, just look at, for example, the I think that the presidential election in the U.S. between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is the. I mean, that was what was so painful. It was like this. So you could see it how she was such a talented, you know, whatever you think about her, she has, you know, she's done all the things, she's been a senator, she's so careful about her wording, she's done all the work, and and he just says whatever he wants, and does whatever he wants, and says crazy things, and they get measured with completely un like different standards. Mm. So I think that as uh, a 
be in the sort of women in leadership positions are always going to be judged harsher. And that's frustrating. And I think a lot of the, you know, things that female leaders do and get criticized for, nobody would blink an eye if a man does it. And you just assume that men are good, whereas women have to constantly prove. And then someone told me once that it's like a man, if he does one thing good, everyone assumes he's great. Whereas a woman, if she fails once, she's always, you know, always a problem there. So, and it, it is a little bit like that. And I think that that's, uh, you know, you just have to try to work through that. And, and of course, take criticism. We should always grow and take criticism and listen for people, but also be aware that not all criticism is equal. And not ev you don't have to take everything uh, personally or take it on board or just you have to also you know, trust that you're good enough. <laughs> You received the Nobel Peace Prize two years ago. I can imagine you got a lot of attention from the media. You became like a super important spokeswoman for the whole movement. How do you feel about expressing yourself in front of people and speaking up in a group? Well, first it was, it was quite challenging uh, throughout the Nobel Peace Prize kind of process because I have this job, but there's a huge movement this campaign is consisting of people from so many countries, so many organizations, and the way media and the public today, they love individuals. We are in a celebrity-focused kind of uh, culture at the moment, and they want one person, and you can see that with someone like Greta Thunberg, for example, this, you know, get lifted up to some sort of celebrity status. So, but really what we wanted to do was lift up that this is so many people behind this. Um, and that's really challenging to communicate mm. uh, because people identify with individuals, not with thousands of people that are anonymous to them. Uh, so it was a bit of a challenge to, to get all that attention and keep the focus on the broad movement. Uh, it's both personally and internally in the organization. But we, I think that we, what, what helped me in, in all of those media was really to emphasize that I didn't win a Nobel Peace Prize, the movement did. And we're like you, we're, we're people always talking about us and the movement and lifting up other people. I feel like that helped me. Um, it's, it's really funny, I was extremely shy as a child. Uh, I still really am, but I'm just learned to fake it. <laughs> and pretend like I'm not shy. Um, so, I don't know, like I've both really enjoyed like the, you know, doing media and speeches, but also every time I do it, I have this, oh, I really don't want to do this. Like every time I go up on stage or get a microphone or anything like that, I just have this like, ah, oh, I'd rather be home. <laughs> I want to go away from this. I don't want to do this. I'm nervous. Um, but I think again, you know, comes back to this that well, I'm just gonna be myself and, and do what I can and, and not think about so much um, how other people are going to receive it. Um, but obviously also, you know, practicing. I think that throughout my career, I was really, really fortunate to start my career in this field with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was a feminist organization. And 
women only in the office and an extremely supportive environment, even as an intern. It's like, yeah, go and deliver a statement at the United Nations, sure. So, which is quite, uh, I've also worked for other organizations where it's been extremely hierarchical. But because that was my first experience in a workplace, really, again, I had this kind of natural, well, that's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be able to take space. You're supposed to be able to have a very supportive work environment where there isn't competition. There's just sort of, everyone should be able to, uh, you know, have agency and authority in their role. Uh, so I started already as an intern to get to practice being on panels and I've done some really bad panels and mumbled and said the wrong thing and I've had like very kind people afterwards saying that was actually completely wrong that what you said <laughs> you said the wrong thing I was like oh okay sorry but I also learned very quickly that so many other panelists most panelists are not that great uh, and I have this I had this trick from the beginning is that I would, I would always pretend in my head, I would go into this mental state of being like a 65 year old male ambassador. So <laughs> like pretend like, how would they speak? They would, they would be really confident and they would say very obvious, simple things like, this is a complicated issue, for example. And then they would nod and you know, it would sound like it was wisdom. I mean, it, it, it really isn't, but you can just, you know, you have this kind of performance part of it, that if you just say things confidently today, people just assume that you know what you're talking about. So I think I also, by just doing all these things and, and practicing and speaking to media, uh, I've really learned. I did a little bit of media training just before the Nobel Prize ceremony because there were so many interviews and stuff. But I mean, just, just an hour or two hours, but the rest of it is just learning by doing. And I think that's a really, you, you just have to try things and, and, and throw yourself out there and be okay with failing. How I think about also work and leadership is that it's almost like a, a muscle when you do weight, like strength training. Like if you need to push it a bit harder than you think you can and then it will hurt afterwards, but that's how, how it grows, the muscle. And it's the same thing with all of these work, like so many times, you know, and it's been growing what I think I can do throughout the years. You know, the first time I delivered a speech in the UN, like, I can't do this, this is too hard. Um, and then you do it, you push yourself, and maybe you made some mistakes and it, it didn't go so well, but the next time you did it, it was easier. Uh, and same thing, I mean, remember having, you know, really a moment, like a month before the Nobel, you know, the two months between the announcement of the Nobel Peace Prize and, and the ceremony. In the middle there, I had this huge crisis. I, I, I can't do this, this is too much. And then you do it, and maybe you wanted to have done it better or done it differently, but the next time you do it, I mean, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna win the Nobel Prize again, <laughs> maybe. Um, but, you know, the next time you get that, you know, you get a little bit better. So I think, yeah, seeing it as, uh, you know, you have to break down the muscles mm -hmm. and, and tear it a little bit in order for it to rebuild stronger. And what about taking up space? Are you aware of like, how you move in a room? No, not not so much. I mean, I'm very, I mean, I'm very tall, and you know, this tall sort of Swede coming in. I'm not a small person, so that always helps a little bit. I think uh, just a physical kind of presence. Uh, I've never really thought about um, that, but I, I I do know that I. I take up a lot of space and I talk a lot and I, um, 
interrupt people and that's not always nice but it also very often gets gets you where you want to be so I'm, I'm a little bit split between this because i think that taking up space and and being more authoritative and 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 demanding is good for the individual but for the community it's not always good and so i also don't sometimes i feel like this you know the advice we give to women is to mimic how men act and i don't think that that's actually the solution i might do it because you know i'm also how i am and this kind of like um my characteristics but i'm i'm, I'm skeptical about sort of encouraging uh, everyone to be assertive and demanding and pushing more because i also think that the kind of more gen female gendered like qualities of listening, compromising, uh, and negotiating is is really important and is a huge part of leadership skills. So, if everyone was extremely you know took up so much space, there wouldn't be any other. I mean, you always take up space almost at the expense of someone else. So it might benefit you personally at that moment, but I'm not sure that's how we should push everyone to be either. But of course, you don't want to be the one who never takes up space either. So we have to figure out how to how to share the space jointly. And you mentioned that you had some uh, remarks about the way you're, you're dressing or you have been dressing. Has it been like a big concern for you in the workplace? No, working for civil society uh, and an NGO, you're always a bit more casual and you know, I'm wearing a summer dress and things like that now, for example, and Birkenstocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, in, in UN meetings and in these sort of public things, you need to, to dress in a certain way and to be taken seriously. And there's a lot of, you know, it's quite easy for men just to throw on a suit Whereas for women, it's much more of a navigation of, I mean, it's not a secret that women that are more attractive also gets more opportunities in life. So there's a certain benefit of highlighting that, but there's also a drawback of that. And there's this extremely fine balance of being feminine, but not too feminine, but not too masculine, but not, you know, wear heels, but not too high heels and wear makeup, but not too much makeup. Um, so th that's really challenging, I think, for, for women. And I think it's getting better. Uh, the more women that are in power, and I think that this is also a key thing, like I don't think that having a woman in power is solving our problems, but the more women we have in power, the more we also open up for different types of women uh, and different, you know, that will encourage also different types of men. So I think also just these... 10, 12 years that I've been working in this field, I, I've seen a lot of progress uh, on, on, you know, women and women being able to be themselves at work and not have to play some kind of character in order to fit in. How would you describe your leadership style? No, <laughs> it's really hard. You should ask someone else about that. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I've try to be very non-hierarchical. Um, I think it comes from Swedish background. We're very community focused or very so much consensus focused. Everyone should be on board with everything. Uh, and I have struggled with um, telling people to do something that they don't 
want to do. I mean, I think it's it's sometimes you have to, but it's I, I still struggle with that. Um, so I like to give people space and opportunities to decide themselves and to control their own kind of work as much as possible. I think that that's how I want to work, and uh, I think that that's how I want other people to work with me. Um, but I also, I mean, I think I have, you know, I think we we work very much, it's very um, fast paced here, which puts a lot of demands on everyone. And uh, even though it's uh, an issue that has a very long term process, it's, it's uh, a long fight, it's not gonna happen overnight. It feels like we're always racing at the clock for the next thing. So it's almost like sprinting a marathon so I think we it's it's I'm I'm trying to work on not overwhelming people. I can be very um, have a lot of ideas and, and new projects all the time and I'm trying to work on maybe not having to put everything out immediately to everyone, like, oh now we're doing this, now we're doing that, now we're doing this, now we're doing that. But I'm trying to pause as well and let people uh, take on new projects when they have time, um, but it's a, it's um, it's it's an interesting thing in leadership because it also changes and you you develop as a leader. And now ICANN is growing, and we used to be a very very small team, and then you it's very easy to work informally without structures. Everyone knows what they're doing, but when you grow, suddenly there's a need for more structure as well, and. It can be frustrating, and so we're, we're growing and we're expanding, and so we have to put in more bureaucratic processes as well. And for me, that's a bit not frustrating, but just it feels like it's oh, I, I don't want to bother with that. But it's actually re I'm, I'm learning that it's really important for everyone's uh, for everyone to know exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it. And I think that you know having clarity is is, is really important in the workplace. You mentioned several times that you consider yourself as a feminist. Um, has it always been like that, or can you point out like one event or something when like your mind switched? No, always. Uh, I think because my parents are very outspoken feminists, and it was just obvious. It, and it's never been a. It's just what you are if you're not awful. <laughs> Why, why wouldn't you be a feminist? Why, why don't you want women to have equal rights? Um, so yeah, no, I think it's very much, but I, I do think that I underestimated early, of course, how, how big of a problem it is for women. I think it's very easy to be, yes, I'm for equality, but we have equality. Like we have the laws. Uh, look at you, you can, you can take whatever job you want, you can go to school, like look at, uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So why are you complaining in Sweden or in Switzerland? Like we're not like Saudi Arabia. But I think so. I, I remember when, especially throughout school, uh, stereotypically, women, you know, girls do uh, a bit better in school. And then I think in universities, the, uh, the it's more female students at universities these days than than male. But as soon as you come out and you start working and you get to the entry level position and you start your first job and it feels very equal, but somehow after a couple of years in the workplace, you kind of see how men 
like sort of go mm. up in the hierarchy and earn more money and get promoted and women stay and it's always a logical explanation well i was on parental leave or i don't want that job or you know but I th so i think that when you're young as a woman today you might feel like you don't need feminism because we have all you know all the rights on paper but i think that as you see and and i have several friends who grew up in cultures where being a feminist is like not a very um, attractive thing to call themselves suddenly after sort of at the age of 25 26 when they've been working for a few years suddenly like i see it oh like i really see how these structures at the workplace is you know stopping women from developing and how i'm being taken or men are being taken more seriously and incompetent men gets promoted whereas competent women are left to do all the real work and you know and, and you get children and who does all the houseworks and not just even if you share 50 50 you still who does all the planning and preparation and writes the list and all the um, kind of managerial work in the family so not just the practical hoovering or dishing or um, cooking but planning and and organizing it uh, so I think that it's sort of, especially when you come, when you become a little bit older, you definitely see that more clearly. So I, uh, I think I really, it hit me after a couple of years in the workplace that okay, now I can really see it. The the differences. And what do you feel you take out of it, being feeling uh, like a feminist? To speak about it openly. Uh, I think that it's, I'm really encouraged by the kind of public conversation about gender and equality um, that's happened in, in things like the Me Too movement, for example, but also this kind of like joking about, oh, look, that's a man panel, which is men on the panel. I think it's so effective to say it out loud. and. I now get shocked when I see a panel full of men, like on say Twitter or something, because I'm like, even if you want to do that, like you must know that you're going to get like three comments and five sort of like, hey, what's that? That you're going to be sort of stigmatized mm -hmm. for it. So, and you can see all these gender initiatives and gender is becoming a buzzword. And sometimes it's frustrating because People are very late in the game. People have been fighting against feminism and then suddenly, you know, oh yes, women are very important uh, or it's just for show. They just add the word gender and like, look at us, we're great. Or men start some kind of gender initiative and, and expect to be applauded and celebrated and they actually use it as a career booster. Look at how aware and woke I am. And they get lots of cred and congratulations and you're such a great person and get promoted. <laughs> so it's a little bit frustrating, but I do think it's very powerful because it's suddenly something that you can't ignore. Um, so I think it really starts by calling it out and speaking about it and amplifying each other. And I think that women networks and all that has been very good at creating this sense of this is a serious issue and, and this is really something that we need to, to talk about. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's going in the right direction. Not, still not 
you know, finished the work. It's never going to be finished, mm -hmm. but it's definitely going in the right direction. Now I'm mostly focused on, you know, we got to a place where, you know, we say women have to be, that we have to have male politicians and, you know, you can't just have men in power. Mm -hmm. And I think that the next phase of that, what we really need to work on now is, is the, the gendered norms around that. Mm. So it's not enough to have Theresa May mm. in a photo with other male leaders. That doesn't fix the problem. It's also about what is considered sort of the masculine strength. And, you know, and I think that that is very connected to the disarmament movement, like this idea that more weapons is strong, it's rational, uh, giving up weapons is weak and irrational and dangerous. You know, and, and one woman getting into power isn't going to be able to fix that. Isn't going to be saying that, hey, we should stop investing in weapons and investing in healthcare and education. But so we have to also work on the sort of gendered mm -hmm. analysis of what we prioritize in the world and what's considered as good stuff and what's considered as negative thing. If you could give one piece of advice or say something to your younger self, what do you think it would be? Don't worry so much. Things will work out. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think I would uh, tell myself to to don't don't um, don't focus on the small details. Just keep keep working and keep doing things and and be proud of that. It's gonna it's gonna work out in the end. <laughs> And finally, would you like to share like one art piece, book, movie, song, anything that inspired you lately or in your life? Yeah, I actually, I watched uh, on, on a flight to New York a couple of months ago, I watched this movie Vice. It's about Dick Cheney, uh, the former vice president under Bush. It's a really great movie, extremely depressing. It's all about the build-up to the Iraq war. And I mean, it, it starts from the beginning, from his youth. But it's about how, you know, these very conservative funders, and they got together with some legal advisors and changed sort of the presidency and what the presidents could do. They, you know, it's all this almost like conspiracies, like with the whole conservative thinkers and mm -hmm. that legal experts then got appointed to the Supreme Court and you know then the you know the Supreme Court ruled that you know Bush won the election and you know all these kind of like mm. and I remember being like super depressed watching this movie but there was this scene in the middle of the movie where all of their plans these people that are Rumsfeld and Nixon was a part of this movie as well and all of their plans was completely disrupted because Carter won the presidential election unexpectedly. And you had this whole wave of after the Vietnam War and, and Americans wanted something different uh, in the same way as we had this wave after Bush of Obama uh, and how they always trying to like manipulate the public. And for me, while the movie is, is it's depressing to see how powerful they are, they also recognize that their biggest vulnerability, like the people with money, the people in power is the public. It's the public that they have to deceive in order to get what, to do what they want. And when the public isn't being deceived anymore, they they don't stand a chance. So I got really, you know, I was just thinking about it a lot after watching that movie. That um, you know, when when you know, democracy is beautiful in that way. Like when, because I think most people want, you know, a safe world. They don't want war. They don't want these things. Um, so we just have to manage to 
get the public feeling that they are actually in control over the politics and not the opposite. So I was actually inspired. Even this, uh, it's depressing, the movie. It's really great. It's amazing. Watch it. But uh, yeah, I, I just got this like, you know, the, the way that we work is really the most effective. You can't always reason with the people in power. You have to go around them by mobilizing the public just to vote them out and change the things. Thank you so much for sharing this inspiration and for the whole discussion. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thanks to Beatrice and to all of you for listening. If you want to know more about her organization ICANN and nuclear disarmament, check out their website, icanw.org. There's definitely always a need for more people to get engaged on that important issue. And if you want to learn more about Euphoria, what we do, or meet us, go to euphoria.org. Our next episode will be released in two weeks. Until then, thanks so much for listening.